Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Another day, another gubernatorial candidate. Today, Oz Griebel joins us in studio and on Facebook Live. Griebel's running unaffiliated against four other candidates in the Connecticut governor's race. He's a recognizable name within the Hartford region. That's because Griebel ran the Metro Hartford Alliance. It's the Greater Hartford Chamber of Commerce for 17 years. And back in 2010, he ran in the Republican primary for governor. Why is he trying again? And with three weeks to go before Election Day, can he push past the two major party candidates that have the money to spend statewide? You can join our conversation. Here's the studio number, 860-275-7266. As I mentioned, we're on Facebook Live. Hello to our viewers out there. Just search where we live, and you can add your question right below that live video stream. And as always, find us on Twitter, at where we live. I want to welcome Oz Griebel back to our studio. Again, the unaffiliated candidate for the governor of Connecticut. Connecticut. Oz, welcome back. Delighted to be here, Lucy. Last time you were on the show, I believe it was uh, the summer of 2017, and I asked you about whether you were interested in running. There were rumors <laughs> uh, you wouldn't budge, and you told me uh, whether you run or not, you want to be part of the solution. Right. So now you're running. I am running. Why should people vote for you? Uh, well, as Monty Frank, my running mate, and I have said, and by the way, Monty and I uh, came together as a partnership back in December. We're not the product of a shotgun marriage from uh, from uh, Republican or Democratic primaries. Uh, and that, to me, is a big difference uh, for starters. But most importantly, what we've said that is only an independent governor, an independent lieutenant governor, can bring both parties together, uh, the moderates particularly in both parties, and the private sector to promote uh, this great state, the great assets we have, and to address these formidable fiscal challenges that are undermining the long-term future of the state. Uh, we've had no net job growth in the state in 30 years. As a result, we've had higher taxes, at hi- uh, higher taxes, more taxes, still underinvested nonetheless in transportation, education, and other things, uh, and have led to the outmigration of people of all uh, age levels and all income levels. So it's only that independent governor that can take the two-party system back, take, take, the, take kinetic back from a two-party system that really has failed the voters here over the last 30 years. I mentioned earlier you ran in the Republican primary right. for governor in, in 2010, uh, but tell us about your experience uh, for people outside sure. the greater Hartford region who, who may not know you. Well, my experience, you mentioned uh, this, my, my professional experience, but let me just expand on it. Both Monty and I have uh, lived and worked in the state of Connecticut, but we have worked for the state of Connecticut for the past 25 years. Let me just talk briefly about Monty. He's a, par- he's a partner at Pullman & Comley. Um, he has been a very, he's been active as, uh, in the uh, Connecticut Bar Association, a media past president. As a result, he's worked on a number of key issues like uh, homelessness for veterans, uh, addressing the opioid crisis. But the thing that's probably most, uh, tells most about who Monty is as a person, uh, is he's a Sandy Hook resident, uh, competitive cyclist, and then after the uh, tragedy, uh, the massacre down in Sandy Hook six years ago, formed something called Team 26, uh, which is 26 cyclists representing one one of them, each of them representing one of the victims of that horrible uh, shooting uh, to uh, ride to from Newtown to D.C. to put a focus on the need for federal legislation to reduce uh, reduce gun violence. My background includes, in addition to the 17 years at the Metro Hartford Alliance, it includes having worked uh, for 22 years with Bank of Boston, the last six 
of which were here in Connecticut as president of our Connecticut and Western Massachusetts operations. I served for two years uh, as the COO of McDermott Corporation, a specialty chemicals company in Waterbury, and as you mentioned, the last 17 as, uh, as, as CEO of the Metro Hartford Alliance. In addition to all of that, that job, those jobs have uh, provided me the opportunity to do things like chair the Connecticut Transportation Strategy Board, serve on a number of for-profit and not-for-profit companies, and be very involved in public policy matters both at the state and municipal level to create an environment where the private sector wants to keep the jobs that are here and expand additional jobs. Uh, I watched the Connecticut Broadcasters Association debate uh, last night, and I believe then you said that you're an outsider. You really stressed that you and Monty are, would be independent of this two-party system. But I think back to the fact that you've been a player in the greater Hartford region right. for almost 20 years. Uh, you've uh, uh, been a leader, in a, a leader during uh, several uh, administrations, uh, governor administrations at the Capitol. So um, when if people were to cast their vote for you, uh, would you really be uh, a new voice? in the Capitol? Who are the people that you would bring in to your departments? Would they just be the same uh, political names and, and appointees we've seen in the past? Well, I think, first of all, we've, I don't believe we've used the word outsider. What we've tried to demonstrate, as I just said in that prior answer, is the experience that we bring, the networks that we bring, the understanding of how government works. Being an outsider, just for being an outsider, and, and saying you're going to run government like a business is a lot of intellectual hoo-ha. Uh, the, the point that we've made is we've got relevant experience. We're also reaching out as we've gone around the state over the last nine months, talking with businesses, talking with hospitals, talking with not-for-profit groups, talking with faith community. We've, we've encouraged people to give us the names of folks they would like to see on the transition team and, and give us the names of people they think should be in major uh, uh, commissioner positions, uh, particularly in areas like DECD and, and OPM and the like that really drive drive the state. So we're, we're looking to open that up. Uh, we've, uh, we've been very clear that inclusion and diversity is a key component of this campaign and a key component of our administration. So there, we probably will bring some folks in who've had meaningful experience. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're that the, the administration has got the right perspectives and the right experiences in so that we're leveraging the extraordinary intellectual talent that is in this state. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Oz Griebel is in studio with me. Uh, he is the unaffiliated candidate running in the Connecticut governor's race. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We're also on Facebook Live. Just search Where We Live and add your question below that live video stream. Uh, so this has become a redundant message in the governor's race, but one of the biggest challenges is to fill these multi-billion dollar deficits right. uh, that Connecticut is facing. Um, what new ideas are you bringing, Oz? Well, I have to say one of the things that frustrates me in these debates is we leave this question to the very end, as it was less to the very end again last night. It is with, all, with the issues around immigration and, and who we might appoint to the Supreme Court, uh, state Supreme Court, they're all very important issues. But sitting at the heart, and the, and the primary motivation uh, for Monty and me to run is to redress the fiscal challenges here, get, restore employment growth of the state of Connecticut. And as you pointed out, the two biggest impediments we have uh, to that kind of growth is the uh, $4.6 billion operating deficit that we're facing in the first biennium, uh, the, the uh, $80 billion unfunded pension liability, and the unfunded uh, retiree health care. These are significant issues. This is not child's play. And as we've said, somebody's going to come in and say they're going to solve this by eliminating or reducing the, the uh, personal income tax, or by saying you're going to return the, as, as Ned says, I'm going to bring the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. If you believe those are the solutions, I've got plenty of bridges to sell you uh, in, in, a, in a heartbeat. Uh, this is serious uh, matter. Uh, and when you look at the, the, the next biennium, 
the $40 billion uh, estimated revenues, the, uh, expenses that are in there, about 40% of that's already allocated on, at 12.01 a.m. of July 1st to, uh, to fund, fund servicing existing debt, funding pension uh, res, uh, obligations, and addressing the uh, state retiree health care costs, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the overall health care costs. So you're looking at balancing this budget on about $28 billion, not $40 billion. And what we have said, and we've been very clear on this, we are going to look at bringing the rainy day fund in. Because if, if this isn't a rainy day fund, I don't know what a – this isn't a storm. I don't know what a deluge looks like. So that's what the rainy day fund is there for. We would take that in over the two years, and we would look, to, we would look at every line item that doesn't require funding in the biennium and determine whether we could postpone – either eliminate or postpone that in the biennium. So that includes looking at the funding of the ARC, which is counterintuitive. Uh, that's the uh, c- contribution to the state retiree and te- teacher uh, pension plans in exchange for getting long-term stability in, the, in those funds over the next couple of years. Is that a new idea? Because when we think about deferring uh, payments to the pension right. and health retirement funds for uh, employees, isn't that why we're in the mess we're in now? We are, but let's take a look at what your alternatives are. I mean, when people say, well, that's irresponsible, is, it more, is, that, is that irresponsible or is it irresponsible to cut aid to municipalities? Is it irresponsible to cut aid to agencies that are serving the most vulnerable around us? Is that reckless as opposed to closing state parks? I mean, these, they, we do not have lots of, 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 of nice, pleasant uh, choices in front of us. And my point, what we've been saying is we want to buy two years of, of some breathing room in order to get some structural changes in. There are, you cannot, there are no opportunities. To, to lay off any state employees. Not that that's a goal, but you can't do that under the current uh, under the current agreement with the unions. So we've got to have honest discussions, not sort of this uh, poll test at pablum uh, that you get get from the two major parties, which I believe, uh, we, we, Monty and I are confident, the voters are going to regurgitate that kind of nonsense and look at uh, what the real, seri- look seriously at leadership that's going to focus on them as taxpayers and residents. Uh, Jocelyn on Facebook writes, uh, she thinks an independent person won't win win. And unfortunately, thinks a vote for you, Oz, will be a wasted vote. She says she's going to vote for Ned. How do you respond well, to that? Well, first of all, you vote for uh, Ned or Bob. You're waste- that's where the waste- wasted vote is. Um, you're looking at thir- continuation of what's happened over the last 30 years of no net job growth, uh, increased taxes, and out-migration. It's four more years of continued decline into mediocrity. And I just tell her and any other viewer, um, remember that of the, nine, of the 2.1 million registered voters in the state, 900,000 are registered is unaffiliated. Uh, yes, people lean to the RRD, but they registered as unaffiliated for a reason. The other thing is, please don't try to determine how your neighbor's going to uh, vote or how your spouse is going to vote or how someone down in Stanford or Torrington is going to vote. Vote for the ticket that you believe is best. And to me, well, people say the choices, uh, like Ned's saying, the only choices between Bob and Oz, and Bob will say the only choices between uh, Ned and Oz. No, the choices between Oz or continued mediocrity that both the other major party can candidates represent. Here's the number, 860-275-7266, if you want to ask Oz Griebel, the unaffiliated candidate running in Connecticut governor's race, if you want to ask him a question, that's the number. Paul has been uh, holding from Ellington. Paul, go ahead. Oz, you got my vote, so there's <laughs> Thanks, one. Paul. Um, listen, given the 4.6 uh, operating deficit in the next budget year, right. what is your position on the practice uh, that includes excessive overtime for three years only? 
to be included in the calibration of the pension pay, better known as pension padding. Yes. In the 2017 CBAC agreement, this practice was changed from 100% to be included to 60% over time. Right. Do you think it is time to eliminating these type of practices Absolutely. entirely? Absolutely, Paul. And, and I think even more importantly, we have to move to a defined contribution plan for employees and not a defined benefit plan. And I, I say this, I want to be really clear. We respect and want talented people in state government. We want and respect talented people in municipal government. Th these positions are critical uh, to, the, to the way the state operates, the way that services are delivered. So I want to be clear that when we're talking about this, this isn't about demonizing uh, state employees or municipal employees. It's not about demonizing union leadership. It's about being honest with state employees and municipal employees about what we can do. The challenge with defined benefit plans is, number one, we over promise, and your comment about the overtime is clearly in that category, and then we don't fund the obligations. So the chickens have come home to roost with a vengeance right now, and we have to have honest discussions both about how we're going to honor the obligations that have been negotiated uh, for current retirees and those who are close to retirement, but we have to move current employees into a defined contribution plan. Yes, it, it has an impact on current operating uh, expenses. You have to take that into account in the operating budget, but it's a more honest, straight forward uh, approach to both the uh, state employee and, and, and teacher and municipal employee as well as to the taxpayer. It has to be part of the, uh, the long-term approach to our fiscal issues. Oz, how would you rate the job that Malloy administration, um, as they negotiate with uh, labor unions, um, have they been giving away too much? Well, you have to go back to uh, this is a 30-year problem. This is, I mean, anybody who says this is Governor Malloy's problem only is, is not taking a hard look at the history of this state. And if you go back to the Governor Rowland, who first had the 15-year agreement with CBAC, which did made, never, never made any sense to me, I'm going to just go back in a tad in history when I say we're in this problem over 30 years. We ran surpluses in this state from 1999 to 2001 to the tune of about $5.5 billion. And when the income tax was approved back in the 90s, the concept was that any surpluses were only to be used for uh, servicing existing debt, funding pension funds, or funding the rainy day fund, unless the governor and 60% of the legislature agreed to, an, to a, quote, declaring a, quote, emergency. Well, that's what we did in 99 to 2000. So instead of $5.5 billion all going into one of those three categories, about $4 billion went into, de facto, into the operating budget. Now, I'm sure there were a lot of great projects that came out of that, but it began to undermine the confidence that residents and employers have in this state that the state is going to do what it says with the money that they uh, they collect from us as taxpayers. I'm going to take a, a call in just sure. a minute, but I wanted to just follow up. It's interesting that you talk about how the, the intent was one thing, but then legislators and well, leaders did another. Right. Isn't that the same argument when uh, you hear your opponent say um, he doesn't want to support tolls? This is Bob Stefanowski right. because he doesn't trust that the legislature uh, will use that money towards transportation. So how do you answer well, that? Well, absolutely. For, for, so we're highly supportive of the amendment that's on the November 6th ballot to create the so-called lockbox. It's not drafted the way I would want to draft it, but at least it's a step in the right direction and it will give me a club to make sure we beat off any folks that are trying to raid the uh, fund for current gasoline tax or any other fund that goes into that. It's a significant step in the right direction and one that we clearly support. I want to take another call now. Uh, James is calling from Roxbury. James, go ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, it's clear a lot of young people and even families of children are leaving Connecticut. So my old elementary school is on the verge of closing due to low attendance. I've since left the state for job opportunities. I'm just wondering what the candidate 
uh, is hoping to do to bring more young people or families back to the state for stay, to stay for the long term. Great question. I appreciate the appreciate it. The uh, first and foremost, I'll repeat what I said earlier. J- job growth is the most important thing we have. People will move to this state, stay in this state if they have an opportunity to earn a living, if they have an opportunity to support their families, if they have an opportunity to pursue their dreams. As I said earlier, we've had no net job growth in this state in 30 years. We lost 120,000 jobs back in the 89 to 91 real estate implosion. It took about 12 years to get them back. We lost another 120,000 in the international financial debacle of 07, 08. We've recovered maybe 100 to 110,000 of those. The jobs coming back this time are at lower median wage. The governor has to be the chief marketing officer for this state, first and foremost focusing on the adage that your next best customer is your current customer, which means spending a lot of time with current employers in the business sector, the hospital sector, the higher education sector, to make sure that the jobs that are here today stay here and that the next job that those entities add are here in Connecticut, not in South Carolina, New Hampshire, or anywhere else. Begin to listen to them. Tell them that they're appreciated, that we appreciate what they're doing with their, having their employees here, the ta- appreciate their taxes that they pay, the investments they make in property and, and, uh, and, and real estate equipment and R&D. It's communicating that message. And by doing that, we have a legitimate shot at recruiting companies and individuals, from the, particularly from New York and Boston. Our proximity to those two areas is our single biggest asset. And, and as, expe- as expensive as Connecticut is, we're a relative, uh, we're very, uh, uh, very uh, we have a great comparison to commercial real estate, residential real estate costs in those two areas. And even with the congestion we have here in Connecticut, it's a relative day at the beach compared to, to, compared to congestion inside of 128 in the Boston area compared to the uh, commute into the uh, New York uh, and Westchester County areas. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Oz Griebel's here. He's the unaffiliated candidate running in Connecticut's governor's race. We're going to take more of your questions for him. After the break, here's the number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live. Add your question or comment right below that live stream. And we'll be back after a short break. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Oz Griebel, he's one of five candidates running in Connecticut's governor's race. He's on the ballot after collecting enough signatures to qualify for the general election. He's been a registered Republican and also tried running for governor as a Republican in the 2010 primary. This time he's running unaffiliated. And today's your chance to ask Oz Griebel a question. The studio number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live at your question below the video stream or on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, publicity surrounding your candidacy was certainly helped uh, recently, Oz, by a creative Weathersfield man. To the listeners out there, have you heard this rap? <laughs> you want a man of the people. Get out your house and vote for Griebel in his powerful card Monty Python. That's from the People for Griebel rap, produced yes. by a creative uh, Weathersfield, Connecticut resident, Ian McDonald. What did right. you think about that? Oz? Oh, it was you know it's a great it's a great compliment. When we've had so many people have done some great things for us, letters to the editor, uh, writing uh, op-ed pieces, uh, promoting us. What Ian did is just a, it it epitomizes the uh, growing. 
uh, momentum that we've had. And for someone like that, I'd never met Ian before. Uh, in fact, when he first sent it, when he first published it, we couldn't find out who, who had actually authored it. Uh, and then to have that kind of, uh, that kind of commitment, I've had a chance to talk with him personally. We, in fact, he was came to a uh, function last night, I had a chance to meet him in person. That kind of energy, that kind of commitment, that kind of passion characterizes this campaign. And it's given us, no question, that rap has given us a very nice uh, boost. We re- really appreciate it. I wanted to go back to tolls we asked briefly sure. earlier. Cynthia on Facebook uh, writes, I drive the Mass Pike frequently, so she's not against tolls. However, the <laughs> Mass Pike has fully functional rest stops available yes. at all hours. Yes. They charge a higher rate for out-of-state transponders. Correct. And then she goes on to say, considering all Connecticut drivers have out-of-state transponders, right. I, I also have one, would right. Connecticut charge the same rate across the board? And will the state reopen our rest stops beyond 830 to 330? Well, it's a great question. And I, I know that what you're talking about is 84, uh, because on 95, obviously, the rest stops have been uh, contracted out. So you have rest stops along I-95. Uh, there are none on I-91, I don't believe. Uh, there's one rest stop. Yeah, so you have a couple of rest stops on I-91 and then the ones on 84. And one of the things I've talked to the tourism groups about is uh, get entering into private-public partnerships where either chambers of commerce or others would come in and run those rest stops. It's critical that the rest stops send a not only to Connecticut residents who might want to use the rest stop, but, but as importantly, having information at those rest stops for uh, for tourists and, and people looking for information. It, to say that they're closed sends a horrific signal, particularly when you see it on the sign that it's only open from its closed from X to, X to Y. On the tolls, uh, I f- just vigorously disagree with Governor Malloy's uh, $10 million uh, study of tolls. We've done studies in the past, as I've said, apropos of the, uh, of the, call, of the uh, viewer's comment. Uh, we could just drive up and knock on Charlie Baker's door in Massachusetts and get their playbook. To answer the question on... Um, on the different rates, yes. The, what I think Massachusetts has done, uh, there's a tiered rate in there for not only uh, cars but also for trucks, uh, depending on where they're registered. There has been no constitutional challenge to any of that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I want to emphasize that tolls in this in this argument over the last 20 years, and I've been for tolls since I chaired the Transportation Strategy Board, has become a, a, a uh, it, it's the classic example of partisan politics. A Republican can't be for tolls. A Democrat has to be for them. And we're not focusing on the transportation strategy and the priorities we need. What I've said is that it will take two or three years to get federal government approval to put tolls on, on uh, because of the tragedy that occurred uh, back in the 80s and the federal government stepping in. Uh, but I believe we could get in the near term, by July 1, for example, of next year, the ability to put uh, tolls on the HOV lanes in 84 and 91. Make sure that we protect the, 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 the individuals who are carpooling so that they aren't either getting charged or they're getting charged at a lower rate. But my point on that is, is by putting a pilot in, we can experiment with these things. How you deal with transponders, we could we could experiment with something like congestion pricing, uh, which is something has to be part of the long-term solution when tolls are put on I-95 uh, and 91. So those things have to be all part of the uh, part of the discussion. Often when we talk about transportation, naturally we think about uh, who's driving and the, and the condition of our roads. But right. what about an emphasis on getting cars off of our roads? Uh, uh, maybe investing more in public transit. Uh, What's your take on the Hartford line these last few months and, and, and Fast Track as well? 
Well, I, I fast track. We're a longtime supporter of it. One thing I would look to, like to look at is whether we'd be able to open that nine-mile stretch up to some of the private carriers like DATCO. Um, I don't know what the federal uh, implications of that are, but the idea of making that potentially available to reduce some of the congestion um, on 84 uh, in, in both the morning and the uh, evening rush hours, I think, is something we need to look at. I mean, everybody says we need to invest more in, in, uh, in mass transit, but that's where the money issue comes in. I mean, everybody said we need to do more, we need to do more. Fine, let's talk talk about how we're going to fund it. And whether that has to have some kind of an increase in the gasoline tax in the near term, whether that's the electronic toll concept that we're just talking about, that's what's needed. And when you look at the capital projects that we're faced with in this state on the roads, uh, the viaduct on I-84 going through Hartford, the uh, Route 8, uh, 84 interchange in Waterbury, the bridges on Metro North, we have significant uh, deferred maintenance issues that have to be dealt with. I, I'm very concerned about the uh, the um, longevity of uh, the New Haven to Springfield line because of, of the, uh, of the, I don't know the answers to how much has been budgeted for the subsidies. And when you look at uh, the, the issue of subsidy and where you're going to, uh, what the priorities are going to be with the finite transportation dollars we have, that's going to be a real challenge for us as we go forward. We're cutting service on the Danbury lines and the Waterbury lines. This is not a healthy place for us to be. We know we need more bus service, in a, particularly in some of our rural areas. So they tend to look at the entire transportation uh, uh, responsibilities and initiatives are critical. Oscar Ebel's here on Where We Live, the number 860-275-7266. Chris is calling from New Haven. Chris, go ahead. Hi, Oz. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. You know, I, I, I like your your pragmatic approach. However, you, you know, you lost my vote regarding um, the CBAC agreement and going from a defined benefit to a defined contribution. I think by doing that, I mean, you don't talk about the, 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 the various tiers that the, the unions have come and negotiated. Right, right now, uh, an employee coming into the state, um, into state government, uh, to be honest with you, the, 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 the plan is, is, is junk. It, yep. it really isn't. And, you know, you want to attract good, qualified people. You want to attract engineers to work for our DOT. Correct. You want to attract uh, high-quality attorneys to work for our attorney general's right. office. By weakening the pension and um, <clears throat> whittling down the benefits is not going to attract the best and the brightest to Connecticut government. And I'm sorry, you know, you, you just lost my vote on that. Thank you, Chris, for uh, your call. How do you respond? Sure, I, it's a, and, I, and I appreciate that. I'm sorry I lost your vote. I hope over the next two weeks you'll reconsider. I'm all for taking a hard look at what the competitive salaries ought to be. I think that's that, to me, is uh, trying to get this into more what I would refer to as a private sector mentality, where benefits are clearly a, a, a key component of this. But looking at the base salary, looking at the portability of a 401k, the number of people over the years that have told me they stay for the extra two years uh, of service or four years of service in order to get the guaranteed healthcare benefits. To me, that's the wrong reason uh, to stay in, a, stay in a position. If you've got a better opportunity to go somewhere else, you ought to do that and not have people tied down for something that allows them to say, okay, if I stay this long. So I'm all for uh, trying to recruit uh, using uh, base compensation and a, and, a, and a competitive benefit package, both in terms of the, the 401k component and the 
health care component both currently and long term. That's got to be part of this issue. But one of the things I'll say to you, Chris, and to the, the viewers, we're not having an honest discussion about how, whether we can fund the obligations that we have. We've got an $80 billion unfunded liability problem on our hands. When I say to people, uh, are you confident, those who are earning their uh, retirement checks today, are you confident you're going to get that retirement check in 20 years? Uh, and I think that's a serious concern that we have to have a, a discussion about. We, we've got basically our two, our teacher retirement and employee, state ret employee retirement funds are funded at about 30 percent of what actuarial values or what actuaries would say they should be. They're essentially bankrupt. If we don't get growth in this state, 200,000 net new jobs, we're not going to reduce this, comp this, this horrific pitting of, of uh, retirees against three-year-olds that have, I think have emerged. That's what I'm trying to get at so that we're honoring the obligations. We're giving people flexibility uh, when they come to work for the state or the municipality. And as a result of, of having, a, having a competitive compensation package, we are attracting the best and the brightest into these very, very important state and municipal positions. You can join our conversation on where we live. Uh, Rick is calling from Weathersfield. Rick, we've got about 10 minutes. So quickly uh, to your question. All right. Thank you for taking my call. You have my vote. Thanks, Rick. The two parties have failed us over the years. But I want to talk about the bonding commission, which sure. I, I like to call the uh, incumbent reelection campaign. Yes, fund. it is. Yep. Because why in Weathersfield should the state be borrowing money to build a little league field and put Agreed. lights on our football field Agreed. when we can't afford to fix the roads and bridges? It's it's you're, you're spot on, and the use of bonding in this state for the last thirty years has been to I don't know if you use the word, uh, but it's been abused. It's it, and I think that the, the the governor has to be the person, and that's what Monty and I are talking about. That we're the people who are coming, the ticket that's coming in to put some responsibility uh, and 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 focus on taxpayers, residents, and employers. And as much as that Little League field in Weathersfield is, is important, as much as the uh, ac uh, acquisition of the land to expand Riverfront Recapture, I chaired that board for a number of years, those are all very important things to do. But to put that on a bonding commission when all we're doing is kicking the proverbial can down the road, to me, is not the right use of, of that kind of thing. It's, be, it's a little bit like if, if you went out and put a second mortgage on your home to go on to, and use the money to go on vacation. That's not why you put a second mortgage on the house. You do it maybe maybe to finance your children's education or to replace the roof on your house, but you're not doing it for things that ought to come out of, our, out of, our, out of your personal operating budget the same way that we ought to be looking at these things out of the individual municipal or state uh, operating budgets. Jennifer is calling from Avon. Jennifer, Jennifer go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm wondering what Connecticut can do <laughs> to counteract or lessen the consequences of climate change, right. which seems right. pretty dire given the report that was recently released right. by the U.N. Thank you. Thank you for the call. And uh, this came up last night in the, uh, in the Connecticut Broadcasters Association uh, debate, and I made the comment there that uh, two things. One is that um, as ser serious as serious climate change is very serious. We've got it right here, rising sea levels along the coastlines. Uh, these are big issues. The opportunities potentially to uh, expand our renewable energy, uh, uh, the delivery of energy through renewables is a big is a big deal. And what I've said is that to me, Connecticut is in as good a position as any other state in the country to not only uh, use our intellectual capital here, whether it's in fuel cells, wind technology, solar panels, uh, the other things that are making sure that we have millstone. Millstone is as 
kept uh, kept functioning in terms of delivering its power uh, down there. Th- those are things that we have here that can not only help us reduce our energy costs, but as importantly, help with employment. We've got great R&D capability down at, uh, at the Yukon uh, Avery Point branch uh, that deals with some of these uh, me- meteorological issues. We ought to be using the intellectual capital here to do two things, uh, to not only solve the problems that we can in Connecticut, where we can, but also to use that intellectual capital to increase our employment in these areas and to be a national leader uh, on all these uh, key issues that you're, that you're referencing. To me, it's something trying to look at the glass half full as serious as climate change is, and it is serious. How do we take advantage of the, uh, of the experience capital, including our, the ex- expertise we have in, uh, in venture capital in this area, and make sure this is something we use to Connecticut's benefit on all fronts? When we look at damage caused by storms and right. what's happening along the shoreline, uh, you said at that debate, you know, we need to also look at this policy to rebuild. Is Correct. that easier said than done, given who lives along the shore? Well, it, it is. But I think this gets into, uh, this is where I think when you look at uh, some of the expertise we have in, in deep, uh, we look at the expertise we have at, at UConn at Avery Point, you look at the expertise and the focus that our major property and casualty insurance companies are on this. There, There's a lot of research that's being done by travelers and, and by the Hartford on this, because they're the ones that have to deal with this issue in terms of uh, underwriting, uh, not only underwriting policies, but then ultimately paying claims. That's where the intellectual capital comes in on this. And uh, the idea of do we just, and uh, some of this obviously comes into the National Flood Insurance Program, should we be encouraging people to go back and rebuild the same way. Um, we've had as the, the damage that was done by the last two major storms earlier in this decade certainly underscores the fragility of the shoreline. It certainly underscores the, uh, the, the danger, the physical danger that people are facing when storms come in that way. And it clearly, undermi- it clearly underscores the importance of where do we want to put both private and public capital when a storm hits and does the kind of damage that we've had in, earlier in this decade. We're getting a comment from Melvin on Facebook uh, who writes, reductions in our department of correction population is a straightforward of solution to bring down taxpayer costs. Correct. What percentage reduction in the DOC population are you willing to commit to if you're elected governor? Well, I don't know whether I'd commit to a percentage, but the, the point is, is spot on. And it's everything from making sure that we're, uh, we've got uh, uh, fair, uh, uh, fair uh, uh, policies in terms of who's arrested for what, uh, for what violations. It takes a look at our whole bail system to make sure that people aren't being uh, held in prison because of their fail, their inability to, to raise bail on what I'll call uh, uh, offenses that don't involve violence. I think those are things that need to be looked at. Clearly, some of the things that Governor Malloy has done and his administration have done on the Second Chance Program to facilitate uh, people who, are, who have served time coming back into the community with the right skill sets so the rates of recidivism are, 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 re, are reduced. These things are comprehensive. The other thing, when I, I said this last night, it's not just the, pop, the prison population we've got to look at. We've got to look at what are we doing at the front end to reduce the likelihood that someone will go to prison. So the whole area of education, pre-K education, we know that a child who doesn't read uh, at grade level by third grade, the chances of them being incarcerated, particularly a male, goes up significantly. Those things all have to be part of this discussion. Uh, So often the focus, again, is on economic development, trying to keep people here, bring businesses into the state, Oz. But uh, quality of life also depends on arts and culture. And if you're elected governor, what are you going to do for that community? Well, I'm going to say what I said, but I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. Our most important uh, responsibility right now in this first budget is do the least amount of damage as possible. That means using the rainy day fund. It means looking at not funding the arc. So we don't have to cut 
uh, in this. I mean, the first, the, the fact that there's anybody who thinks there's going to be more money uh, coming in in these next two years, again, I'll sell you. I've got a whole inventory of bridges. I'll be happy to sell you. We have to make take serious look about how we're going to protect our parks, how we're going to protect funding for arts and education. Where can we have greater partnerships between uh, some of our arts and cultural organizations and the public school systems, where many public school systems have had to cut out arts and humanities and cultural uh, uh, cultural amenity as part of the education program. Those things are critical to having have the right people in the room, having the right discussions so that our priorities stay in line. But I'll go back and beat this $4.6 billion operating deficit dead horse one more time. Our responsibility is to make sure that we do not raise taxes in the next two years. That is going to send, that would send a horrific signal to the private sector, both residents and employers. And at the same time, we need to protect uh, the appropriate aid to educate, find support to education, to transportation, and to arts and cultural organizations. So to me, having creative ways of bringing the public and private sector together on these next two years is going to be critical to make sure we're supporting those viable, those very important organizations that you referenced. So for the short term uh, to deal with those uh, multi-billion dollar deficits using the rainy day fund, deferring right. some pension uh, contributions, uh, what would be your, your goal the first 90 days, Oz? Well, we would do things like reestablish. Well, first of all, we've got to develop the budget. So that sitting right up at the top, uh, the first three priorities are the budget, the budget, and the budget. Uh, we'll start developing that on November 7th. We have to submit it, obviously, on, on, on in February. The most in- important uh, point I would make is that every decision we make has to be done on the basis, does it strengthen Connecticut's ability to increase on a net basis 200,000 new jobs in the private sector? That's got to be at the heart of everything we're doing, including that budget. Oz Griebel, unaffiliated candidate in the Connecticut governor's race. Oz, thank you. Real pleasure. Vote line 1H. Go right to the bottom line on November 6th. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Thanks to our listeners and viewers on Facebook Live for your questions. Now, coming up, we're going to be joined by two political analysts to talk about Griebel's candidacy. With three weeks to go before Election Day, what do you want to hear from these candidates before you cast your ballot? The number to call, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Be a part of our audience this Monday. Where We Live is going to broadcast a show from inside MGM Springfield. MGM's opening in downtown Springfield marks the start of new competition for Connecticut's Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun casinos. So on that next show, Monday, we're going to sit down with casino officials and some reporters, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join us live at 9 on Monday. Now, we just heard from Oz Griebel. He's running unaffiliated in Connecticut's governor's race. Now, what does he need to do in these next three weeks to push past the two major party candidates, Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanowski. Uh, And can he be given, can his uh, campaign really reach a a wide uh, number of voters, given the fact that uh, he doesn't have a lot of money uh, like uh, Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanowski? Those are some of the questions I have for our two guests who who are just joining us. Rennie Folco, Associate Professor of Legal and Policy Studies at Trinity College in Hartford. Thanks for coming in, Rennie. My pleasure. And Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. And Jonathan, we should say, just as a um, to be transparent, 
Transparent. You're also the political director for Kurt Miller, the GOP-endorsed candidate for Connecticut State Comptroller. But you're just here today to talk about Oz Griebel. Indeed. <laughs> so what did you think of, of his answers and his campaign? Well, I was uh, very impressed, even with the debate last night. I mean, you know, uh, we discussed a little bit about that in, in the green room. Um, you know, he does come off, and I think he's a genuine policy wonk. Um, and, and quite frankly, I like candidates like that, where it's not just rhetoric. And so he does offer some great examples on what's going on here in Connecticut with certain public policies and coming up with new ideas, fresh ideas, quite frankly. Uh, and I think it'd be useful for both parties. Rennie. Yeah, I think he did well uh, both last night and uh, in his discussion with you. And it's clear that he's knowledgeable and has a command of a lot of the issues, which is extremely important. My one question would be, um, and I wish you know there were an opportunity to ask him because I didn't think of it actually even in advance. It was after listening to him. Um, how would he work with what would be a Democratic legislature in Connecticut and that as governor, you don't simply get to decide everything that's going to happen. And so I think we need to ask some questions of him in terms of how he would collaborate with others and not just with the private sector, but with a whole other branch of government that gets to make a lot of decisions. Now, the Democrats have been in control of the General Assembly for some time, but in the Senate, that was, that was a, you know, very much, I think, a tie between Republicans and Democrats. And this coming election for the General Sam Assembly, Jonathan, could we see it flip and it could be Republican-controlled General Assembly? It could happen for both chambers, uh, effectively. And it's very close, as you said, Lucy, with the Senate. And it's just a nail-biting situation right. with some of these elections, especially down the shoreline. We're seeing some contentious races going on there. And the professor brings up a good point. One has to wonder what does it mean when you are another party and what is, you know, and even internally, we see what the dynamics of when you have an outsider, you know, certainly somebody who's not been a part of an institutional party, try to operate a state government. I mean, bringing up the example of Phil Murphy, for example, in New Jersey, we're seeing all the dynamics, what takes place there with a business leader trying to effectively rein in the problems of a legislature. Ready. Or not to mention at the national level. Mm. I mean, I, and so whether, uh, it, whether it's Democrat, Republican, if you have one house that goes one way and one the other, it seems to me you still have to work with a legislative body. And I didn't hear anything in his discussion um, about how he would take his some very good ideas he has. But those are not all executive decisions. They're decisions that require legislation in many cases. Jonathan, I wanted to go back to you. You mentioned um, you heard some fresh ideas. When I was listening to him, you know, the idea of just using the rainy day fund and pushing back uh, contributions uh, to the pension fund, are those really fresh or new ideas? Are they more realistic than something that Ned, uh, Ned Lamont or Bob Stefanowski are bringing to the table? So last night we had a big viewing party on our campus at Southern. And <laughs> a lot of my students kept on asking me questions about this rainy day fund and what is it all about? Mm -hmm. We couldn't stop debating about it for a half hour. Um, I, I think the thing is, is that as a last resort, that should be something up, taken up for consideration. And clearly, it's a point of what happened with the debate last night. It was discussed for a while in discussion. I'm, I'm pointing more towards the example of what he said in terms of environmental issues uh, and what he raised this morning. And I'm going to go back to even the Harper Current article that came out about his ideas for higher education specifically. Um, he's more specific on the policies than I think the two other candidates. We didn't get a chance to talk higher ed. What are some of Oz Grebel's uh, points? Well, he wants to go back and examine what can we do to consolidate the campuses again to save some money? What can be done to kind of revive 
um, some additional reforms and, and approaches to deal with the administration uh, with the university system and what kind of connections. I hate bringing this up, especially as professor at Southern, to connect back to uh, the big flagship university, UConn. And that's a great question to bring back up. That was a discussion back in the 90s. Why can't we revive that about partnerships and working with a big state university like UConn to save some money? And he's brought that out. Both the, other, the two other candidates haven't. Uh, Rennie, we hear so much frustration with the, uh, the two uh, major party system in this country, but yet we hear from callers. We heard from one today that says that they view a vote for an Oz Griebel as a wasted vote. When can we get past this? And is it time for Connecticut to consider ranked choice voting? Oh, I mean, I think ranked choice voting actually could be a very good thing for a lot of reasons. Um, but in the meantime, I do think it is difficult for somebody like Oz to break through. And I mean, I think he's had good opportunities in the debates. I think it's great that what you're doing here to give, you know, uh, listeners in Connecticut a chance to hear. But I do think it's extremely difficult. And it's because of the way money works in elections. And that's another piece of it. Jonathan. Well, it is difficult to break through. But I will give him credit. He's now getting double digit you know, you've seen the 11%. polls lately. Exactly. Which, hey, he almost doubled that number in the last right. month. That's rare. And so one has to wonder, can he get to even 20 percent? And so we're seeing that kind of t- effectively take place. And that's a big question for both parties. Um, and of course, I think everything is on the table, to be fair. Um, there's discussion about maybe, you know, an open election, open primary, if that's possible, maybe caucuses. I mean, the parties have to reexamine what can we do to broaden out the base. Yeah, and I would say particularly after this year where you really have three people running who did not come up through the usual, you know, uh, political processes, don't necessarily have that kind of experience. So in a way, you have people who are not as closely tied to political parties as we may have seen in the past. And I think it it does raise questions and it raises questions for me about, you know, turnout and how that's going to work out in this election. That's going to be critical. How many people are going to come out from the urban, rural, suburban areas? Is it going to be that much of an uptick? Because we're lucky to get maybe 35, 40 (laughs) percent for these state races. (laughs) We've heard about the the Trump effect on Mm -hmm. uh, races uh, within Congress, but is that enough to get people in Connecticut to vote for these these state races? I think it takes a little bit more. And I think what we're seeing in in Connecticut especially is that there are some significant concerns here on the table. Budgetary issues, uh, you know, the the future of the state, especially as it relates to the economy. I mean, this has to resonate with Connecticut voters. And if it doesn't this year, we're really in big trouble. Yeah, And I guess what I think is who's going to come out because of the Trump effect regardless of who's running Mm. at the state level? In other words, I think this is an interesting year in terms of off-year elections because the president has made himself – the issue on the ballot in so many states. Now, maybe less so here than in other places. But nevertheless, I think that for both parties, there are other issues that probably grab their attention more than the very important issues that you were talking about this morning. The Trump effect and also Malloy effect. I mean, you right. know, what does yes. this mean for, you know, for Malloy and his legacy as well? I mean, I think that's going to resonate with a lot of voters too. You're hearing Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University, and Rennie Folco, Associate Professor of Legal and Policy Studies at Trinity College here on Where We Live as we just talk about uh, Oz Griebel's uh, comments during uh, our interview and what we should be looking for in the next uh, three weeks. Uh, when we look at a candidate like Oz Griebel, is he going to be possibly a spoiler for Stefanowski or Lamont? Where will he pull votes from, Jonathan? I think that's something that uh, Rennie and I have been debating about <laughs> <laughs> in the green Let's room. Let's hear it. Well, <laughs> well, I, as I said to her, I think, um, you know, Cousin Wisdom would say likely the Republican. 
uh, side of, of things. I, I know that uh, a colleague that we know too well is, is Professor Rose, who said that it tends to be the Republican-leaning independents that might be a concern. We might see that effect taking place. But I, I won't discount the Democratic takeaway, too. Yeah, I, think I agree with there. that. I think this is really interesting, and it's not clear to me, particularly because there is so much disaffection, because people are just so fed up yes. and feeling angry, and because of, I think, the way Malloy has certainly been portrayed, uh, and 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 you know, kind of the low appro- approval ratings. I'm not. I just don't know. I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, election, and I'm not willing to go out on a limb on this one. Well, for both parties, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of jaded and really disaffected voters out there. I mean, they are really angry, and that's why it explains why we only have 21 percent Republicans and double that for the Democrats. There are a lot of independent voters and unaffiliated voters out there in Connecticut. Right. And who of the of the five candidates? So we had Griebold on today. Next, we're going to have Stefanowski and Lamont. Uh, there's the lib- Libertarian candidate, also uh, this other uh, party, the Amigo Party. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the largest block, the unaffiliateds, who are they? Who are they leaning towards? What are you hearing from your students who who live in Connecticut and that my, are looking to vote? I have an awful lot of students who are independent, unaffiliated voters, and I'm constantly angry with them because I'm like, join a party so you can be part of the primary in the first place. But there's this frustration among Generation Y and Z, and I get it, who just don't like the party system, and it stinks. But I think the thing is, is that, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to, I think, split up in various diff- in different directions. How many of them going to actually show up? That's going to be the question. I'd love Running. to know the turnout from that base. What are your students telling if, you? Uh, well, you know, I have kind of a self-selected group in the program I teach. You know, they tend to be just very socially and politically active. It's the public policy and mm. law program. Uh, but I would say probably almost all of them are independent or the vast majority. Mm. or That's what they will say is that they're unaffiliated. And it is not at all clear to me how many of them are actually going to vote. I mean, I have tried to impress on them how important it doesn't matter which way you vote because you form your habits about voting as a young person. Get out there and do it or you don't get a right to complain. And that's sort of my little motto in the classroom. But I can't tell. You know, I think it depends on the particular population. I would say say among women, the women that I see tend to be a little bit more motivated about voting. And perhaps that's because of the Kavanaugh thing and just general attitudes about Trump. Hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, we have the major party candidates coming in next Thursday on Where We Live, Bob Stefanowski, next Friday, uh, Ned Lamont. What are the questions we should be asking him, uh, them? Uh, Jonathan, I'll start with you. I, I'd love to know how the campaign trail is treating them because they're going to all you know different parts of the state. And I'd love to hear some feedback on, on what they're, uh, they're faced with in terms of what they're hearing out there from various parts of the regions. I mean, we have such a diverse... Uh, political topography out there in Connecticut. So I'd love to hear some feedback on, on what that's like. And push them a little harder on what they're actually going to Specifics. do. Specifics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and have some specific questions ready that they, they just can't, you know, kind of back away from. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that because when we watch the debates, uh, the journalists are trying to get those details, but the candidates aren't biting. So uh, it's interesting that when you mentioned looking at Malloy's legacy, uh, Jonathan, uh, you know, all you have to say is uh, Ned Lamont, he's pretty much just a Dan Malloy. Right. And vice versa, you know, Ned Lamont saying, Bob Stefanowski, you're voting for Trump if you vote for him. 
Right. And I think that that's just, you know, that's just the usual political rhetoric you're going to get from both sides because it resonates with their bases. So the big question is, what does that mean for the independent unaffiliated voters going back to that group? And, <laughs> and just the last word I would say about that, typically those are the people who vote in off-term elections, Good right? Off-year elections. It's the party base. It's the party base. And the question for me is going to be, will turnout be greater because of other things that are going on? We'll have to leave it there. Rennie Folko, Associate Professor of Legal and Policy Studies at Trinity. Thank you, Rennie. Also, My Jonathan pleasure. Wharton, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, thanks to our digital producer, Carlos Mejia, for putting on this uh, on Facebook Live. Thanks to our viewers, our listeners who called in. And we hope to hear from you again. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>